Welcome to the Insight in Psych podcast. Today we're going to be discussing teenage depression. Although the residents and psychiatrists on this podcast are affiliated with various institutions, the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those institutions. This podcast is for learning purposes only and is not to be taken for medical nor psychiatric advice. Your personal doctor is the best person to discuss those issues with. Hello, my name is Ramona Bott, and I'm a second-year psychiatry resident at University Hospitals Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio. I have no disclosures. Today we are talking with Dr. John Hertzer, a child psychiatrist at University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center. Let's face it, you have a license to be goofy, and I'm a goofy <laughs> guy at heart, and uh, that's how I try to connect with kids. As well as Mr. Jack Binder, the CEO of Life Act in Cleveland, Ohio. We've had several friends who've lost children. Several members of our wedding party actually have lost children. And I've always felt that this is absolutely one of the most preventable forms of death. There's something you can do to intercede early and to save their life. There really can't be a greater calling. Dr. Hertzer, what is the prevalence and characteristics of teenage depression as opposed to a depression in adults? Well, thank you, Dr. Bott. The prevalence of teenage depression is about 10%. And in many ways, it can be similar to adult depression, specifically depressed mood along with associated symptoms of sleep or appetite changes, energy level dropping, concentration issues, loss of interest in pleasurable activities, feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, worthlessness. And certainly we want to be attentive to whether there's suicidal ideation, self-harming behavior, or suicide attempts. But in particular with teenage depression, depressed and irritable mood can be indicative of clinical depression. If you look at younger kids, other things like school refusal, physical complaints without any medical explanation, behavioral problems can be indicative of childhood depression. We do want to treat it as early as we can identify it because like with so many conditions we see, the earlier we identify and treat, the better off the outcomes we believe they are. Mm -hmm. And we do that with proper diagnosis and then a treatment plan. A treatment plan can involve therapy. It can involve therapy and medication. Uh, we just have to tailor the treatment plan according to the needs of that child at that particular time. In the last decade, sadly, suicide rates have increased. Reasons we can't fully explain, but perhaps social media plays a role. Also in the last decade, Emergency room visits to hospitals for suicidal ideation or suicide attempts have increased. So we want to address those. Obviously, we talk to every family about safety concerns and suicidal ideation that may accompany suicide attempts. But we can also look at those referral sources and say, perhaps this means the stigma is down. Perhaps people are more willing to go, whether it's emergency room or their primary care office, and discuss the mental health needs of their child and teenager. Currently, there's new recommendations in pediatric practices that universal screening for all teenagers for depression is essential to identifying those kids who need either treatment through the pediatric office or a referral to a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. So what is the best way to go about that screening process? Is it something that's only done in the psychiatry office or is there other ways that people like parents or 
um, counselors or other children can help with that process? The best initial way is to seek um, guidance through a primary care office. But one thing we know is that there are a lot of kids and teens out there who have clinical depression who are not being treated or identified. That's why other ways to provide referrals for these kids, and that's where the Life Act program is so instrumental, and Jack Bender can uh, explain that more. But the fact that Life Act goes into schools and helps educate high schoolers and now middle schoolers on the signs and symptoms of depression in themselves or others can really help create a referral process and streamline that process, perhaps in kids who otherwise wouldn't receive that. So, Mr. Binder, would you be able to elaborate on Life Act and what kind of services it provides? Life Act was founded 25 years ago, and for the last 16 years, we have been providing an in-class educational program on depression awareness and suicide prevention to high school and middle school teens in Northeast Ohio. For the first 23 years of our existence, we were known as Suicide Prevention Education Alliance, and two years ago, we changed our name to Life Act. And changing our name was really more than just a rebranding. It was recognizing that what we do isn't just about suicide prevention. It really is about mental health. We get to the students, hopefully, earlier than most emergency rooms would be seeing them or many doctors would be seeing them. This is at a point in time when these students are first starting to experience something that's not right in their life or something that is not right with their friends. They see the behavioral changes. They're not sure what it is but they know it's not getting better and they know that they can't solve it themselves. We educate them in what to look for, the outward manifestations, the behavioral changes. We certainly don't ask them to try to figure out what it is. It's just they start to realize that maybe they're not quite like their friends, something's a little bit different, and they need help. So this is a way for them to see within themselves or to see within their friends that reaching out to a professional is really the way to prevent this from getting any worse. And I'd like to think that we are all about early identification. Many of these students um, might, not man- might not have these outward behavioral changes that are observable to an adult, maybe a parent, maybe a minister, a teacher, a coach. They're more obvious to their friends who see them 24-7, who see them on their social media platforms, who see them at their locker, on their sports teams, in the, in the play, on weekends. This, this repetitive type behavior is um, when all of a sudden they see these dramatic changes, they start losing interest in what they were passionate about, whether that be school or the arts or athletics or whatever it is. Their friend can say, is something wrong? Can I help you get some help? And we encourage the students to intercede, but we also empower them and say, you're really important in this process. You're going to see things that most adults around you will not see until it's too late. Frequently, the adults in the process, not the healthcare, but more in the school and in the other events that these students um, participate in, they see abnormal behavior, but frequently kids who need help, there's nothing abnormal about their behavior. They may be quiet. They may, be, they may pull back. They might sleep. They may not show up. Those are, you're asking adults to identify something that isn't there, even though this student may be struggling, but their friends see this. And this is what we are, have been very successful at. Uh, last year, we, we provided our program to about 30,000 students, and we had 2,500 referrals. 
And what we do is we don't counsel. We identify and then we refer forward. In a school setting, normally the first step is to meet with um, the designated person on the administrative staff. Frequently it's guidance. And we say, are, are you aware of what's going on? If you're not, here's what we've seen. We believe the parents should be contacted. In many cases, the parents may have some indication and they say, okay, what do we do next? And that is where we seek out the professional help, for instance, with our partners at um, University Hospitals, Cleveland Medical Center. Among students in particular, we try to compare it to a broken arm, a broken leg, heart disease, diabetes, asthma. If you have a physical ailment, you seek professional help. The longer you have that ailment without getting professional help, the worse it becomes. It's a very easy scenario to lay out to a team. We say if you, again, if you break your arm, you would go see a doctor, you would get it fixed. If you broke it and you don't get it fixed, it will just get worse and worse until such point in time where it, the, the damage may become permanent. And we explain to students that the earlier they seek help, the less invasive the treatment, the higher the uh, opportunity for success. The program is valuable in so many ways, including giving kids the awareness and understanding that there are multiple options in terms of reaching out to people and telling them how they're feeling, in particular their underlying depression. Many kids we see in our psychiatric offices are comfortable sharing how they're feeling with their parent in the room. Others prefer to talk to us alone about it, and we give them both those options. But part of the pediatric screening process in primary care offices is also screening instruments. Some kids, particularly in the depth of a depression, would rather use a screening instrument to write down their feelings and answer a screening tool rather than talking directly about it. And that gets the process started for identifying these kids and getting them the help that they deserve. LifeX has been around for quite some time, about 25 years, from what I understand. What brought the program about? Obviously, there was a need, but I didn't know if there was something specific that started everything. There actually was uh, something very significant. Our founder, Tim Treadway, lost his son as a senior at Yale University. Tim Treadway was the uh, chairman of the board of Union Commerce Bank, which is now Huntington National Bank. His son was intelligent, athletic, musical, handsome. He checked all the boxes of what you want your child to be, except one day there's a box you don't want to check. He suffered from mental illness. His friends knew. His parents knew to an extent, and they were working with him. When the Treadways lost their son, they wanted to do something significant. They wanted to do something to help others avoid this in the future. We became the first chapter of the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention in the United States. This was about 22 years ago. AFSP does some great work. It is primarily work done in research, which is all very important. But I think that Tim Treadway, in his grieving process, needed something more immediate. He needed to see the impact he was making on a daily basis. So at that point in time, he collaborated with university hospitals to develop an in-school curriculum that they could deliver directly to the teens. And he could actually go into a classroom and see the faces of the kids that he was helping. And I think this helped him in his grieving process and in the process created this wonderful program 
It's boots on the ground. It is making a difference in schools every single day. Our referral rate last year was just a shade over 8% of all of the students that we saw, which I think is consistent with the numbers that Dr. Hertzer mentioned. But one thing we know is that the 8% only is the students who identify on the days that we're there. We know through additional resources that students are seeking help after we're in the program. Our latest round of evidence-based evaluation indicates that students who see our program have a much higher level of knowledge of the signs of depression, and our previous evidence-based evaluation proved out that students are much more likely to engage in help-seeking behaviors because of seeing our program. So we're really making a difference, but we only take it so far. We really have to rely upon our healthcare partners to take it mm -hmm. after that. We Again, we do... We turn over the first level of dirt. We're the early identification and education. But after that, we have to rely upon our healthcare partners to carry it forward. And speaking of healthcare providers, Dr. Hertzer, I think maybe you were in practice before Life Act was around. What kind of differed between before and after Life Act came to be? And in what way can clinicians such as yourself integrate Life Act and its resources into your practice? I've been in clinical practice for 20 years now, and over that period of time, we've had really relevant studies, breakthrough studies, that really underscore the effective treatments available out there for clinical depression. I'll quote one in particular uh, treatment for adolescent depression study from about 10 years ago. And in that study, they divided teenagers, and there were over 400 teenagers in this study, into four treatment arms. Therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, medication, Prozac in this case, the placebo pill, and a combination treatment of Prozac and cognitive behavioral therapy. And over the course of 12 weeks, 70% of the kids who were in that combination treatment arm were rated as improved or very much improved. Extend that out to 36 weeks, that number jumped to 85%. So this is really good information for us to share with our patients and their families that there's effective treatments, life-saving treatments available to youth with depression. Mr. Binder, if you wanted to elaborate on that. Thanks. I, I just had one comment to extend beyond that. Part of our mission is to, to tell them, and I do have to say one other thing that I have personally observed, is I think students in this generation I think that social media has had a dramatic impact in a negative way for these students. I would call it being weaponized. But I do think that it's also empowered these students to really talk about things that a generation ago were taboo. When you create an environment for these students of trust and of openness, they will talk about it and they will seek help, I think, more readily than a generation before them. So I think there's great opportunity there. Both of you have had a lot of experience with children. And sometimes, or all the time, interacting with children, especially young children, and talking about their feelings and emotions is different than talking with adults. Do you have any tips for people, healthcare professionals or other people that have to interact with kids on a daily basis on how to get to that root emotion or how to talk about things like suicidal ideation? Well, I think you have to meet kids where they are at that given moment. There may be an office visit where uh, the child or teen is not interested in saying anything, and you can't force them to do so, but you can 
give them the message that when they are willing to talk and share, that we're here to listen and not to judge. Asking about suicide is an important question. Parents should know that if we ask them about suicidal thoughts or if they ask them about suicidal thoughts, it does not increase their suicide risk. Rather, we think of it as a risk going down because it's opening up the discussion if those are happening or if they happen in the future. But I think the most important thing we can do is, as a clinician, let them know that we're in the course of treatment for the long run, no matter how long that takes. I ask them when I first see them, when you're feeling better, how will I know that you're feeling better? In other words, what do you do when you're feeling well that you don't do when you're not feeling well? Because I want to personalize it, and I want to know when we've accomplished what we intend to, what we seek to uh, do over the course of our uh, doctor-patient relationship. Mr. Binder, did you have anything to add? Sure. This is certainly from a non-clinical side. I think to further on what Dr. Hertzer said is you have to create an environment of trust. You have to really genuinely be concerned about them. You have to care for them, and you have to show that. And once they believe that, they will talk. They will come forward. And I think that, again, confirming what Dr. Hertzer has said, every school that we go into, we started with a high school program. And three years ago, we introduced a middle school program at the request of educators because they said, you're getting to the kids too late. As soon as we implemented the middle school program, we had primary school teachers saying, what do you have for us? You're getting to them too late. When we talked about a middle school program, we said, we won't really touch on the word suicide. We'll deal more with anxiety and depression. And the teacher said, no, you won't. You'll discuss suicide. They said, you don't understand what these kids are exposed to on a daily basis. We've heard the same from first grade teachers. Right here in Cleveland, we had a first grade teacher who said in her classroom, she already had one girl who had attempted and five girls who were cutting in first grade. So I've learned from this. As a father of three boys, they all would vouch for the fact that whatever I think they know, they know 10 times as much and they're exposed to it. And we need to deal with not what we think they know, but the reality of what they do know, what they're exposed to, and give them the credit of being intelligent, courageous. And I think that if you give them that opportunity and show them that I'm going to listen to you because you are smart, you do know things, they'll come forward and they'll talk. Is there any specific person that a student that notices these behaviors in their friend should talk to or a specific number they can call? Any specific resources for these? We do have several resources. And again, with our partnership with university hospitals, we have excellent resources to refer them to. But the actual process itself, because we have instructors who are in the classroom, many of the referrals, 2,500 referrals last year, came directly to our instructor while they were in the school building from the student. And mm-hmm. that can come in writing. That can come sometimes in the form of a picture that students draw. Sometimes the students will come up personally and introduce themselves to the instructor at the end of the class. Sometimes it's a little bit more, our instructor will will notice a student who can't make eye contact with them, who gets fidgety when they talk about sensitive subjects. Our instructors, because this is all they do, they become very good at identifying these types of passive behaviors that identify that perhaps I should speak to this student. And invariably, it is a student that they need to talk to. 2,500 of those students last year somehow 
became known to our instructor. Our instructor then begins the process. But our instructor leaves the school after a couple of days, and so what is left behind? We arm the students with a lot of different resources. We have a crisis card that has numerous resources on it. One of them is um, our local phone line, 1-844-604-LIFE, L-I-F-E. And that will ring uh, here in Northeast Ohio with Frontline Service, who is our first level of triage, then frontline service, if they feel that a student needs to be referred to a healthcare facility, they, they can contact university hospitals or another healthcare system that that student might be affiliated with. But I do think that using a phone line to make a phone call is, is kind of an antiquated method. So we're looking at new ways for students to reach out. One is the crisis text line, 741741. Um, we're working on a, uh, we have a mobile, um, a mobile responsive page on our website where if a student goes to uh, www.lifeact.org, they will come up with a page that's a one-button transfer right into crisis text, right into crisis talk, crisis chat. We operate on the assumption that if somebody is going to our website on their mobile device, they, they know why they're there. They're there for a reason, and we want to make that as easy of a process as possible. We don't want them to get frustrated. We don't want them to try to determine, well, what county am I in or what healthcare provider should I be choosing? Those aren't decisions that, that have to be made at that point in time. They're just saying, I need help. Get me there. Is there any way for teenagers or young adults to get involved in the Life Act program? Well, there is, and I'm glad you asked that. Um, when I first started with the organization, they asked me to come in and um, basically oversee their strategic planning process. In the first meeting that I had with the board, I walked into a boardroom of people who all looked a lot like me, um, <laughs> and they were of the same age. And I looked at some of their marketing literature and some of their emergency response resources, and they all fell back upon the crisis phone line, the one 800 in crisis phone line. And I said to this room full of people that I have three sons and they all have, they all have a mobile phone. And I'm not sure that any one of them knows you can use it to make a phone call. <laughs> they use it for everything but. And my concern was that we had a bunch of people who were, in some cases, fully two generations removed from our client base, from our target audience. And we were fooling ourselves if we thought we knew what was going on in their lives. Um, as, as in touch and as cool as we might feel we are, <laughs> we can't really have empathy as to what's going on in their life. So one of the first things we did in our strategic plan was to establish a youth advisory board of teens. And we now have a board of about 25 teenagers, uh, freshmen through seniors in high school. They're our sounding board. They help us message. They tell us when we're wrong, which is frequently they help us craft our message, not only in content, but also in delivery mechanism. And one of the challenges I gave to them when they first established was I said, we understand the role that social media plays and we need to be active in social media. We need to turn it into a tool. And I said, your challenge is because of the rapidly evolving nature of social media, I don't want to know what the hot platform was yesterday. I don't even know. I don't even want to know what the hot platform is today. I need to know what the hot platform is tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Because those platforms have a life cycle of six to 12 months. By the time we know about it, it's old news. We can't deal with old news. We need to have, we need to have the fresh stuff. We need to be in there with what they're using today. 
So we love getting teens involved. We also have a young professionals board. This is our associate board of 25 to 35 year olds who are in their first or second job in the beginnings of their career. And they can look at their high school and college days with a little bit different perspective. So merging those two outlooks really helps us understand better whether or not we're hitting our mark with messaging. Is there any way for, you know, a resident like me to get involved? Would that be something involving with like the young professionals? Absolutely. And we have had several members of the healthcare community who are in the residency or just out of the residency who've expressed interest in getting involved with our associate board. So that is great. We, we have many opportunities for the teens to get involved. Anybody who'd like to join our organization in that capacity, just go, uh, go to uh, lifeact.org. And there's opportunities to volunteer or get involved with one of our boards. Well, thank you so much for both of you for talking with us. Thank you for listening to the Insight and Psych podcast. If you have questions or comments, feel free to email us at insightandpsych at gmail.com. Please review us on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. Special thank you to Dr. Hertzer and Jack Binder from Life Act for speaking with us today to help us all gain more insight into psychiatry. 